It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Every few weeks, it seems, there's a really silly story. I mean, a breathtakingly dumb story that everybody feels they need to talk about. I mean, this goes back to how could Barack Obama wear a tan suit? And what did Donald Trump mean by Kofefi? Um, so there's one now. Watch Post has a whole piece on it. And basically all it is is Joe Biden and his wife, Jill, going out to a restaurant, getting a chicory salad and two bowls of rigatoni. It wasn't what they ate, said the Washington Post, that got people all worked up. The Bidens are known to be fans of red sauce pasta, and they hadn't opted for some culinary lightning rod such as foie gras or pizza topped with pineapple. It was the mere fact that they both ordered the same entree. Can you believe it? What a faux pas. Unreal. And then, so then they, the post goes out and interviews a bunch of people. Some said, yeah, you know, I like to try different things when I go out. Uh, so we never ordered the same thing. And others said, yeah, we ordered the same thing if we both really want that. And I'm just trying to figure out why this is so endlessly fascinating. I think with newer couples, you know, you're more adventurous. If you got an older couple, there's that word, um, where the president and first lady know what they like, and so they both wanted this rigatoni. Uh, you know, it's not against the law. There's no provision in the Constitution saying you can't order the same thing. And this is at the Red Head Restaurant, which the name is well known because during the Trump administration, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, dining there with her family or attempting to dine, got kicked out because the owner didn't like Trump or anybody associated with Trump. I think that was a legitimately big story that ran for days. Rigatoni Gate? Uh, not so much. But I thought you might find it amusing. Uh, this is the Friday edition, which means I hope you have a good weekend coming up. I also hope you will watch Media Buzz Sunday morning, 11 Eastern. Before we get to some of the more uh, important stuff, this is actually important in that it's blowing my mind. There's a, a state senator in Florida, Jason Brodeur, and he has this bill. By the way, I've seen coverage of this on TV, and there's a picture of Ron DeSantis there because everyone knows what he looks like. I haven't seen anything that says DeSantis is backing this. He might, but not according to the couple of Florida stories that I looked at. Uh, he wants bloggers, I guess there are still bloggers, or, you know, substackers or whomever, who write about Governor DeSantis or the state attorney general or members of the Florida cabinet or legislature to register with the state or face fines. I cannot tell you how outrageous it is. And if you don't register with the Florida Office of Legislative Services or the Commission of Ethics, you can get fined. Um, and if you get paid for writing as a blogger, you must register within five days of the publication of the article. If another blog post is added to the first, first blog post, you gotta submit a monthly report on the 10th of each month, I and mean, it just goes on and on. Um, and disclose if you're getting paid. Does this guy even have a passing familiarity with the First Amendment? 
that you can't publish something without registering with the government? <laughs> I mean, I would get more worked about it. I doubt it's going to pass. If it passes, it'll be thrown out. And also, you're picking on the little guys. Maybe there's reason to believe that a lot of bloggers are paid by, paid off by partisan organizations, and that would, they should declare that. I don't know, but the, that's not the argument being made here. All right. Some of you, I'm sure, are sitting there saying, wait a minute, why aren't you talking about Richard Murdoch, who was just sentenced to life in prison for the double murder of his wife and son? And I got to be honest, I've kind of tried to keep this podcast and pretty much my show a Murdoch-free zone. It's not that. It's not a horrible tragedy, what this rich guy did. Uh, you know, I haven't really even been following it, but because I have the TVs on in the background, I saw, you know, he said he wasn't anywhere near the murder site until a bunch of witnesses placed him there. And then at the last minute, he said, well, I was lie, I lied and I got caught up in the lying and so forth. Um, so, as I say, it's awful. But what's happened is it became such a TV phenomenon that all three cable news networks put it on for hours and hours because it delivered ratings. But it's a local news story in South Carolina. That's what it is. Just like all the ones, the trials and investigations that the public has gotten fixated on, uh, having to do with missing white women or other murders. And they're almost always affluent, upper-middle-class families. You can draw your own conclusion on that. And I'm not criticizing anybody who thinks this is the most fascinating case and was glued to the TV for hours. That's fine. I did get kind of annoyed when, you know, no other news could break through unless the trial took a break. Uh, you know, it could be developments in Ukraine, whatever it was, or East Palestine. The Murdoch trial came first. And I just think that's a case of, even uh, toward the end, the New York Times and Washington Post were writing about it, not because, you know, they consider this, I think, uh, you know, an incredibly important national story, but because it had become this daily TV soap opera that they felt, okay, so many readers are following this, we got to update them too. In any event, it's over. Uh, Murdoch didn't show much emotion. Uh, two life sentences, actually, and that doesn't bring back these two family members. Okay, let's go to number one. This is going to sound like I'm leading with a local story. And it is a story based here in the nation's capital. But it's far more than that. It has to do with, you know, Congress, there is a thing here in D.C. called home rule, where, and that was not always the case, uh, where citizens of the District of Columbia, who are not members of any state, get to vote for their mayor and council. Well, the council, without the support of Mayor Muriel Bowser, who was kind of a, you know, liberal but not crazy, uh, the council passed a bill that Congress can now overturn, and the Republicans are trying to do that. The interesting thing here politically is that President Biden said yesterday he will go along with the Republicans in blocking, it's a revision of the criminal sentencing laws here in Washington. Now, 
you know, if you're a pure home rule person or you say, you know, Washington should be a state, there's endless arguments about that. Politically speaking, it's not going to happen because it would mean two more Democratic senators. Um, then you feel like any tampering with what the people's elected representatives want to do is bad. But look at Biden's thinking here. Biden says, I support D.C. statehood, as do most Democrats, and home rule. But I don't support some of the changes D.C. Council put forward over the mayor's objections, such as lowering penalties for carjackings. Think about that. And there's various other criminal penalties that are lessened. And Biden posted that statement to Twitter after meeting up on the Hill with Senate Democrats. He said he would not veto the resolution. If the Senate votes to overturn what the D.C. Council did, I'll sign it. Now, let's just think about that. Crime is becoming more and more and more of an issue, especially in big cities. That's the principal reason that Lori Lightfoot lost her job as mayor of Chicago. And then she said, oh, you know, I'm a black woman. Well, she got elected four years ago. I'm still steamed about that. So when it works for you, it's fine. When it doesn't work for you, uh, it's racism. Um, Now, city officials were caught off guard by this. But, you know, Biden didn't want it to be hung around his neck or those of other Democrats, more moderate Democrats, trying to get reelected next year, that they were perfectly fine with the District of Columbia um, making lesser sentences for even such outrageous crimes as carjackings. And, you know, sometimes there, there are laws having to do with marijuana and so forth, where if Republicans control at least one chamber, you know, they veto it just because they don't agree with it. And that erodes home rule. Um, But Republicans are taking aim at provisions to reduce maximum penalties for certain crimes. So there's a whole list. At a time when D.C., like many other major cities, is is grappling with uh, trying to reduce the surge in violent crime. That's why Bowser said the, we're cutting down these penalties could send the wrong message. Here's Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal. These issues of sentencing and criminal justice, when they're brought to us, raise issues on the substance of the measure itself. We can say the Senate and Congress should not be making this decision, but if we're forced to make it, we have to view it on the merits. So it's just lunacy as a matter of public policy to be reducing... You know, it's one thing if you're dealing with reducing penalties for, you know, mere marijuana possession or something like that, where there's an argument that too many people are being overcharged. When you get into violent crime, you know how terrifying it must be? You're in a car and somebody comes with a gun or a knife and takes the car away from you and you're worried if you're even going to be alive. Why don't we lower the... uh, Criminal penalties for that. That seems like a really good idea. So had Biden gone along with this, you know, he and his fellow Dems would be whacked. And you'd hear about this over and over again in the 30-second ads as being soft on crime. So politically, it's a loser. In terms of safety in the nation's capital, it's a loser. And... 
Even the mayor didn't want it. So it's kind of amazing to me. So Joe Biden took this stance. It's kind of similar to in 2020 when he didn't go along with, uh, well, he certainly didn't go along with defund the police, you know, the stupidest slogan in the history of American politics. He didn't go along with Medicare for all, which is what Bernie wanted, even at the time when it looked like Bernie might win the nomination. So this is Biden saying, hey, I've got a red line here, and this crosses it. You know, I believe in home rule. I actually believe in statehood, but you're not crossing this red line. And by doing that, he's diffused it, at least as it pertains to him. And I think we may see versions of this play out in other major cities. So Joe Biden and his advisors had to decide, am I going to go along with this? Do I want to see anybody saying Joe Biden thought it was fine to reduce penalties on carjacking? Um, And that's why I chose it as the lead story. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Now let's get to the thing that I was going to make the lead story. Sometimes these are very difficult decisions. You know, I've only got so much time on the podcast. So number two is George Santos. And it's not just George Santos caught in another lie because I could do those every day, probably for months. It's the House Ethics Committee announcing yesterday it has opened an investigation, a special subcommittee, it's its own subcommittee, to look into allegations against Santos. And when you look at what the committee put out, and they're likely not to say very much for the rest of the investigation, which could drag on given the scope of what they're looking at. They will look at where uh, Santos has been accused of improperly failing to disclose information on his house form, his house financial disclosure form, whether he violated federal conflict of interest laws or engaged in other unlawful activity during his congressional campaign last year. We'll also examine an allegation of sexual misconduct from a perspective hire, who briefly worked in the office, you remember that story, where the guy claimed he'd been groped, and he came in there and he just, you know, wanted a job. So Santos, who represents parts of Long Island and Queens, said he's fully cooperating, and that's about it. Um, what's interesting about these ethics committee situations is, it's the only committee in the House whether or not Republicans or Democrats are in control of the chamber, that has an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, 10 members, five on each side. And I think that's smart because you want whatever the findings are, whether there's we're not going to do anything further or, you know, we want to get rid of this guy. Um, nobody can say, well, the Democrats ran this through because they controlled it, you know, like they controlled the January 6th committee, and the same thing on the Republican side. Now, Kevin McCarthy is interesting, uh, has been, let's just say, distancing himself from Santos since becoming Speaker. He has said the House would take action, depending on what the Ethics Committee finds. He also kind of strong-armed Santos into giving up his two committee assignments. And what's not clear here is how long this is going to take. Because that's, that's the downside. On the one hand, you know, you want them to do a thorough investigation. 
On the other hand, I think the Republicans in specifically would like to be done with the Santos matter because it's a friggin' embarrassment. You know, every day or two, it's like a new person comes out of the woodwork. Well, you know, Santos, he lied to me too. Guy who was dating him and didn't know he had had a wife. Um, all of this stuff. Guy he'd never met before but claimed was a family friend. All the Tangled's financial stuff, including the firm he had been associated with in a few weeks after he left, you know, the SEC comes along and says it's a pyramid scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. So critics over the years have said ethics moves too slowly on these sort of things. Uh, and we shall see. Then there's the question of when they finish, whether it's in a month or in six months, what do they do? Well, the ethics committee can recommend to the full House fining the offender, recommending that the House censure him or reprimand him. Uh, in extreme cases, as the New York Times puts it, the committee can recommend a member be expelled from the House. But that's pretty rare because it requires a two-thirds majority vote. I don't know. It may be rare. But if this subcommittee of the Ethics Committee comes out and says, look, uh, we found evidence that Santos did all these terrible things, that he lied here, there, and everywhere, that he lied on his financial disclosure form, that he was appeared to be guilty of sexual harassment. I'm not stating any of that as a conclusion, but there's a lot to work with when it comes to these allegations. And there could be a move to expel him. Maybe there would be a two-thirds majority. Maybe all the Democrats would vote to kick him out, and enough Republicans would vote. Except, you know, their problem for this session of Congress is that they've got like a five-seat majority now, and then it would be down to four. But that's the dilemma that Kevin McCarthy and everybody else in the GOP faces, is that you keep this guy hanging around where he's a stain on the party, where he's an embarrassment to the party, where he's admitted many of these lies, many of these lies, starting with, you know, he didn't go to college, and that he worked for Goldman Sachs. I mean, all of that he's admitted. That's just what he's acknowledged. Some of the other stuff he either hasn't addressed or, you know, is kind of claiming that uh, people are out to get him. Anyway, that's we'll see what happens. I just think, I don't think it's impossible that either Santos gets censured or is expelled by the House. Or he could be forced into resigning, except we already know that he has no shame whatsoever, right? I mean, he has to admit he didn't go to college. And all these other exaggerations, fabrications, and on and on. Uh, and he's still there. I get the impression he's enjoying the attention. But they got to do something, so we'll see what ethics comes up with. Number three. According to the Justice Department, Donald Trump can be held liable in court for the mob, the actions of the mob that stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021. And this was a statement by DOJ or filing by DOJ yesterday. Now, this is not about the criminal investigation. These are civil matters. But the Justice Department sometimes has to take a stance on civil matters. I mean, we still don't know how, what Jack Smith is going to do. He's certainly 
getting closer and closer and subpoenaing the people around Trump. Uh, then there's the Georgia investigation, and then there's the New York investigation involving Stormy Daniels. There's a whole lot of investigations going on. But it seems like that's been true of Trump almost from the time he took office. But this is a very different situation because we have civil suits here. And two officers with Capitol Police, joined by 11 Democratic House members, are seeking to hold Trump liable in a civil suit for physical and psychological injuries they suffered during the riot. Trump's stance is that, uh-uh, you can't sue me. This, this can't go forward because I'm protected by the absolute immunity conferred on a president performing his official duties. Looking here at a Washington Post story. Um, that is true. I mean, a, a president couldn't function if, you know, presidents do get sued a lot. But they can't be personally sued. I mean, it's different suing the administration for whatever policy dispute there is. That goes on. I mean, look, city full of lawyers here goes on a lot. But here we're talking about private people, although this does include these 11 House Dems, trying to get damages in a civil suit against Donald Trump. So here's what DOJ says. Speaking to the public on matters of public concern is a traditional function of the presidency. Um, But that traditional function is one of public communication. It does not include incitement of imminent private violence, citing violence. So you would think that the Justice Department, by saying this on this question of can Donald Trump be successfully sued by private citizens or not, it's kind of tipping its hand as to how it views um, the matter of January 6th and the role that Trump played in, in that awful and violent day. But criminal and civil are very different. So even if, just, if, if justice does believe all that, uh, whether or not there's enough evidence to bring a criminal charge that wouldn't get laughed out of court is a very different matter. So what's interesting here is the lawsuit uh, filed under a statute that was written after the Civil War in response to the Ku Klux Klan using force or threats of intimidation to prevent government officials from doing their jobs. Uh, Again, more from DOJ. Presidents at times, may at times, use strong rhetoric. And some who hear that rhetoric may overreact or even respond with violence. But it goes on to say that If it's likely, if it's directed at inciting or producing imminent lawless action or it's likely to incite and produce such action, it is not protected by the First Amendment. In other words, president can get up there and give a speech, but there's a line that even presidents can cross, according to the Biden Justice Department. Just as denying First Amendment protection to incitement doesn't unduly chill speech in general, denying absolute immunity to incitement, of imminent private violence should not unduly chill the president in the performance of his traditional function of speaking to the public on matters of political concern. So I guess we have a dozen former White House and DOJ officials from both parties, from Democratic and Republican administrations, uh, having filed briefs on this case uh, against Trump's claim of immunity, saying this is a rare but clear circumstance in which a president broke the law while acting well beyond any official 
capacity. Now, this doesn't settle the matter. This is DOJ weighing in, and I guess judges will have to make their own decision, uh, at least in this particular case uh, filed by the two Capitol Police officers and a bunch of House Dems. But, you know, the government's position carries a lot of weight, I would say, and we'll see how that one plays out. Uh, There are a lot of lawyers (laughs) involved in just about everything Donald Trump uh, touches. And, of course, he hires lawyers when he files lawsuits. I mean, over the decades, he has sued a whole bunch of people, including journalists, including journalists. uh, You know, there's one guy who was an architecture critic who did a bad review of one of his projects. Um, He got sued. And Trump has sued the Pulitzer Prize board. And there's a whole long list. Now, he doesn't end up winning most of these suits. But he does sort of make his opponents pay because when you get sued, and particularly if you're a smaller organization, um, you have to hire lawyers, go through discovery and all that unless and until the case gets thrown out. So that's the situation, at least on this question of the civil suits. And yes, it's hard to uh, keep score at home unless you've got a lot of paper to write down about all these various lawsuits, investigations, legal clashes, and so forth. And, of course, this has been an absolute boon for the TV lawyers who get to come on. And, you know, on the different channels, you see the same faces every day. Former FBI official so-and-so and state's attorney so-and-so and somebody who was a U.S. attorney. It, this has been the Trump presidency and the aftermath. It's been a goldmine for these lawyers. And if you think it doesn't uh, help their practice when they go on and they become personalities in their own right, uh, seen on TV all the time, of course. That's why they do it. I mean, some of them get paid as cable contributors. Others don't. But you're trying to attract clients or make clients think you're important and your opinion matters. Nothing like television, baby. This is, I first wrote about this phenomenon after O.J. was charged. And that whole circus and televised trial. You think Murdoch was, trial was something? Wow. And all the minor characters who became television celebrities. It's amazing just to look back and think of it. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Okay, number four, coming back to Ron DeSantis. And I um, did a story for Fox News at Night. Uh, on Governor DeSantis and his constant clashes with the media. Uh, We'll play it for you, if you missed it, on Media Buzz, because there's a long, hostile relationship here that DeSantis obviously thinks works to his advantage. But how will it be when he's actually a national candidate? We shall see. But interestingly... DeSantis doesn't give many interviews to mainstream media types, but he did just give one to the Times of London. Now, why would a guy, even who wants to run for a president, want to talk to the Times of London? Well, several reasons. One is, you're obviously going to be asked about foreign policy, and since you're a governor, you want a chance to show that, you know, you have views on big foreign policy issues. 
and to talk to a prestigious paper like the Times of London certainly can help burnish those credentials. Also, it's a paper owned by Rupert Murdoch, whose publishing arm, HarperCollins, is also publishing DeSantis' book, which just came out, and he's been making the rounds on Fox and elsewhere to promote this book. Um, Described here as one of England's oldest and most respected papers. Um, So the companies controlled by Murdoch seem to be giving DeSantis a nice ride. Um, The uh, New York Post has written it up. Uh, DeSantis has gone on Fox and Friends and other shows. Excerpts appeared in the New York Post and on foxnews.com. Um, but in these interviews, the New York Times story notes, uh, the governor has not been interviewed by Brett Baer or Shannon Bream or people from the news division who might ask tougher questions. Maybe he will be in the future. I would like to interview him. I put in a request. I think, you know, he's a national figure and uh, we'd love to have a chance to talk to him. Now, so the Times of London story comes out. Uh, DeSantis describes himself as uh, a big supporter of Brexit, though he doesn't think Britain's Conservative Party has been as aggressive at fulfilling the Brexit vision. Okay. Asked if he had written a memoir because he wanted to be president, DeSantis said, what I would say is I was well-known, I was kind of a hot commodity, and I thought the book would do well. I think it is doing well. Okay. But what's interesting here is sort of the kicker to the story, which is, as the interview went on, according to this account, DeSantis seemed to become irritated with the reporter. Uh, The guy asked DeSantis how he would handle American relations with Ukraine uh, because the governor, in his own book, referred to Biden being weak on the world stage and failing at deterrence. And so this reporter, whose name is Charter, pressed for more detail. How would a President DeSantis handle the conflict in Ukraine? Perhaps you should cover some other ground, the governor said. I think I've said enough. So you got to say he's very disciplined. He knows what he wants to talk about and what he doesn't want to talk about. But, I mean, can you think of a more legitimate question uh, for a potential presidential candidate? How would your policy differ from President Biden's? You know, I don't think it was asked in a confrontational way. Something he's going to have to address, not just Ukraine, but a whole host, you know, China, a whole host of foreign policy questions. But, you know, it's, it's still the preseason. DeSantis is not going to run or conceivably not run until he finishes his legislative session toward the end of May. And so right now he's kind of shadow boxing, wants to sell some books, make a little money, uh, get a little bit better known. But he still has this knee-jerk instinct that most journalists he deals with are out to get him. More on Sunday about that. Number five is about the Newark Star-Ledger, the biggest newspaper in New Jersey. This is a writer from the New Jersey Globe. And again, seems like a local story, but I have a particular place in my heart because New Jersey is where I started my newspaper career. Um, I had gone to Columbia Journalism School I was trying to get a job. It's hard to break into the New York market, so I worked for the Bergen Record, Hackensack, New Jersey. My first job, worked the night shift from 5 to 11 p.m. 
there were 70 towns in Bergen County, and I got to, I could certainly be familiar with all of them. I initially covered two of them, and then I rose through the ranks, and I became a dayside reporter, and, and so on. So the two U.S. senators from New Jersey and 11 Jersey members of the House of Representatives have sent a letter to the Star-Ledger and its parent company protesting their decision to shut down the Washington Bureau and to let, and basically the Washington Bureau is one guy, Jonathan Salant. He's been around forever. He would be laid off under this decision announced by the Star-Ledger. Quote from the letter, this action will immediately leave millions of New Jerseyans with no no firsthand access to the issues being debated in Congress or to information about how actions taken by federal agencies specifically affect our state. This is particularly concerning given that uh, New Jersey Advanced Media is currently the only New Jersey outlet with a full-time correspondent in Washington, D.C. So it's one of the sad aspects of the newspaper business that this has happened in a lot of places where they think they can't afford or it's not worth having a Washington bureau or a Washington correspondent. When I started in the business, there were big Washington bureaus for a lot of these papers. I mean, LA Times, Boston Globe, Baltimore Sun, and they've dwindled and dwindled. So this letter signed by Cory Booker, Bob Menendez, and a whole bunch of other uh, members in the House. Um, and they also say, you know, they praise Salant and saying he's a reporter's reporter. I'm sure he's pissed them off at times. But it is really true because when I first came to Washington, I knew a lot of the people who were covering state delegations. Unless you have somebody who's following, you know, the federal funding for some dam project or some courthouse project or to rebuild some tunnel or to change a law that affects your state or the biggest city in your state, you're really not getting much because the national media doesn't have time to deal with that, how something affects New Jersey. And so if you think about, it's only the cost of one reporter's salary, and it's sad that the New York Star-Ledger is doing this, and I doubt they're going to change their minds just because a bunch of congressmen wrote a letter. But the problem is I could probably draw up a list and see a whole bunch of newspapers that have clothed their Washington bureau. And again, you know, on one hand, it's the prestige of being to, you know, be able to cover the State of the Union or whatever. But their main job is not to write the same national stories that the national reporters are writing. Their main job is to look at how Washington affects affects local issues. That's the job. And most of the people who do it do a good job. It's just a dwindling group. But I find it fascinating that the politicians would say, hey, we need this for our state. We need this kind of coverage. Otherwise, you're screwing our state. We'll see whether it has any impact. And with that, I can turn my attention back to the weekend. Hope you have a good one. Thank you for spending this time with me. Always appreciate it. Media Buzz Sunday morning and back here on Monday. We'll see you then with more Buzzbeater. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.